0: sacrilege at St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York. Who authorized the scandalous funeral of a trans activist that descended into desecration? Father Thomas Petrie and Sister Deirdre Byrne are here with analysis. A victim of disgrace, Jesuit Marco Rupnik speaks out about her ordeal. Will justice finally be served in this case? Moral theologian Father Thomas Berg weighs in. And the Vatican document on blessing same-sex couples has stirred controversy around the world. Bishop Liam Carey of Baker, Oregon, joins us exclusively with how his diocese will proceed. And the National Catholic Register's Edward Penton tells us about the recent Vatican meetings with Freemasons. The World Over begins right now.
1: Now, Raymond Arroyo.
0: A warm welcome to all of you joining us in the United States and the world over. If you'd like to comment on tonight's show, send me an ex-post. I'm at Raymond Arroyo. We'll get to the sacrilege at St. Patrick's in a moment, but first some news. Since Pope Clement XII issued his decree condemning it in 1738, Catholic membership in Freemasonry has been forbidden. Until 1983, membership in Masonic lodges was punishable by excommunication. According to magisterial teaching, Masonic rituals and principles are irreconcilable with Catholic doctrine and constitutes, quote, grave sin. The ban was reaffirmed as recently as November of 2023. So why did a prominent Vatican cardinal hold a closed-door meeting in Milan with Freemasons on February 16th? Here with a report, I'm joined by senior correspondent of the National Catholic Register, Edward Penton. Ed, uh, I mentioned in the open, the church has long held that membership in these Masonic lodges is forbidden by the church, and Pope Francis himself signed a letter upholding that ban late last year. So how did this closed-door session between Cardinal Francesco Coco Pamiero and members of the Italian Masonic lodges come about?
2: Well, it seems to have been an uh, initiative by, by the church, uh, by certain figures in the church. This story was uh, broken by La Nuova Bussola Quotidiana, uh, which is an Italian mm-hmm. Catholic newspaper. They, they managed to infiltrate the meeting. Uh, the meeting was, was hosted by this uh, uh, group, which is approved by the Italian bishops, which is, uh, investigates uh, relig- different religions and sects uh and they really the, the aim it seems was just to open channels of dialogue which which has been attempted before it was attempted in in the 1960s during the second Vatican council uh they didn't succeed and now there's this new effort uh to to reopen them uh but it seems as i say the initiative comes from the church and not by the uh, the freemasons which is also of interest i think what was the nature of these discussions i mean this was
0: it an official vatican uh, deliberation or, or, or did Coco Palmiero and the others, uh, including the president of the Pontifical Academy of Theology,
2: are they just acting on their own? No, it's 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 definitely seems to be on their own. Um, but obviously, uh, with the sort of climate in the Church at the moment, uh, it's it's given uh, sort of no no sort of re- resistance from the Vatican. It seems there was no no statement put out or, or any effort to sort of oppose this. Uh, but it, the other mm. interesting thing about it too is that it was a, a closed door meeting. It was the press wasn't invited uh, by the request of the Archbishop of Milan, not by the Freemasons, who quite happily made their mm. speeches uh, public. They two of the speeches made by two of the three uh, Grandmasters of the, the the main lodges in in Italy uh, made their speeches public. So it was interesting that uh, it seems very much the uh, the initiative coming from the from the Church, uh, but not not from Rome, at least not uh, directly.
0: Hmm. 85-year-old Cardinal Coco Pamiero, he said of the meeting that he believed, quote, an evolution in mutual understanding has been taking place between the Lodge and the church over the last half century. Now, since masonry has always been considered antagonistic and opposed to the church, what is this evolution based on?
2: Well, it's interesting. There seems to be... Uh, there was another person speaking at this at this event, uh, uh, Bishop uh, Stagliano, who's an Italian bishop. Mm-hmm. Um, it was interesting putting together both his speech or the words that he is reported to have said and the speech of one of the grandmasters because they both talk about uh, the sort of importance of of open openness to dialogue but not just dialogue but to to holy communion at least from the uh, the grand mm. master's point of view saying that well the pope's given uh, access to holy communion for divorce and remarried and and um you know his openness oh. to, to homosexuals, and so why not us? Uh, and the bishop Staliano also gave a sort of similar point uh, uh, position, saying, "Well, you know, we need to do away with, uh, not do away with, but sort of um, put doctrine aside, so that we can uh, dialogue with these people and and basically uh, go along with sort of what um, what the Grand Master was saying in terms of sort of who am I to judge and that sort of approach. So there's a sort of synergy, if you like, mm. between the two, which I think is is also interesting between these two these two figures, at least.
0: hmm it's, it's interesting. All right. Ed, before I let you go, Cardinal Christoph Schoenborn is warning of schism, as the bishops of Germany indicated they intend to push forward with reform, which would include lay governance as part of their controversial synodal way. This following a Vatican letter over the weekend that called on the German bishops to suspend a vote on the matter. Schoenborn said the following... The idea of bishops voluntarily binding themselves to the decisions of synodal councils is not compatible with the core of the Episcopal mission. Ed, is the cardinal too late in sounding this warning? And what are you hearing about this?
2: Yes, well I heard today that the the vote was suspended, so they did listen to the Vatican uh, and they, they've mm-hmm. suspended this vote on this Synodal Committee. Uh, but yes, I think the sense is that this is too late. I mean, I think a lot of people who have been following this was, were warning that this, you know, this could come and that the Vatican is going to have to step, step, uh, step down on them pretty hard at some point, and that's what they've had to do. But of course, the argument is, well this should have been done a long time ago and this should have been nipped in the bud. Yeah. But, uh, but it, despite, there have there had been uh, letters from the Pope and so forth, but uh, the criticism of those is that they've not been strong enough and there's not no. been enough uh, real discipline, in fact, enforced on the German church no. to stop this development.
0: Now we'll see how this shakes out. Edward Penton, we will leave it there. You can always follow Ed's reports and columns on X at Edward Penton. Thank you, Ed. Thank you, Raymond. <laughs> On Thursday, February 15th, a funeral service took place at St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York City that would shock and scandalize Catholic faithful literally the world over. The funeral service was for a well-known transgender activist and sex worker advocate. Why did St. Patrick's Cathedral authorize the service? And how did one of the church's most iconic cathedrals come to be used as a backdrop for agendas at odds with Catholic teaching? With analysis and observations, I am joined by physician, retired Army colonel, and superior of the Little Workers of the Sacred Heart, Sister Dee Dee Byrne, and the president of the Dominican House of Studies, Father Thomas Petrie. Thank you both for being here. Um, I, I have to begin with what the celebrant at this ceremony had to say near the beginning of this funeral. This is Father Edward Doherty. He is a Marian old priest at St. Patrick's. Watch or listen. Hello.
3: Well, welcome to St. Patrick's Cathedral, except on Easter Sunday, we don't really have a crowd that, this, that is this well turned out, you know? we <laughs> 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 be move to Funeral service, no mass. Okay, okay, okay. Right? Yeah, sure. So after that, we do the final accommodation, we go. Okay, okay, okay. Yep. Okay.
0: Father Petrie, uh, part of what they are reacting to, uh, th- there are literally hundreds of people in bizarre get-ups, fishnets, uh, stockings, and thongs at St. Patrick's. I mean, kind of outrageous outfits and behavior. Your thoughts about the -the on-the-spot decision to change this service
4: from a mass to just a funeral service. Well, obviously, they recognized very quickly, if not before the mass even started, that something was off and that this was an outrageous uh, behavior that the congregation was already demonstrating. Um, and it was very vulgar in in a sacred place that is meant for the worship of God. And so to utterly stop the mass and to try to turn it into a funeral service, a simple liturgy of the word, I suspect was as a, a pastoral decision uh, because they wanted to at least be pastoral pastoral towards the deceased and, and the deceased friends and family. But it, it was clearly uh, uh, an event that was way out of hand from the get-go.
0: Yeah. And, look, that may be one of the best choices they made to, to you know, at least uh, preserve the sacrament and the Eucharist from, you know, desecration in, the, in this environment. Sister Didi, I'm at St. Patrick's several times a month. They have security everywhere. When they saw the posters which were placed in front of the sanctuary, which read—and I don't mean to scandal anybody, anyone, but this is what it read both in Spanish and English—mother of whores, and they had a picture of this person there. Shouldn't that have been an indicator, in addition to the costumes, that security should have shut this down before it ever began?
5: Absolutely, Raymond. I mean, I can't, can't even envision— um... How they could have, it must have just been an onslaught of people and they didn't know how to stop. But uh, basically, the doors opened to Satan. Um, And it doesn't surprise me because a month before, who spoke but Father Rippinger on Our Lady and how the devil can get into our lives at our weakest points. And um, I guess, you know, our church has been trying to open their arms to those who have alternative lifestyles, and this is what's happened. THE DECEASED
0: HERE, SISTER AND FATHER, WAS A BIOLOGICAL MALE WHO IDENTIFIED AS CECILIA. NOW, HERE WAS THE PRAYER OFFERED. LISTEN CLOSELY.
3: INTO YOUR HANDS, FATHER OF MERCIES, WE COMMEND OUR SISTER CECILIA IN THE SURE AND CERTAIN HOPE THAT TOGETHER WITH ALL WHO HAVE DIED IN CHRIST, she WILL RISE WITH HIM ON THE LAST DAY. WE GIVE YOU THANKS FOR THE BLESSINGS WHICH YOU BESTOWED UPON CECILIA IN THIS LIFE. They are signs to us of your goodness and of our friendship with the saints in Christ. Merciful Lord, turn toward us and listen to our prayers. Open the gates of paradise to your servant and help us who remain to comfort one another with assurances of faith until we all meet in Christ and are with you and with our sister forever, through Christ our Lord. Amen. In peace, let us take our sister to her place of rest.
0: FATHER Doherty SAYS, INTO YOUR HANDS, FATHER OF MERCIES, WE COMMEND OUR SISTER CECILIA IN THE SURE AND CERTAIN HOPE THAT TOGETHER WITH ALL WHO HAVE DIED IN CHRIST UNTIL WE MEET IN CHRIST AND ARE WITH YOU AND WITH OUR SISTER FOREVER. THROUGH CHRIST OUR LORD, AMEN, IN PEACE, LET US TAKE OUR SISTER TO HER PLACE OF REST. FATHER, HOW DOES THAT SQUARE WITH CHURCH TEACHING ON SEX AND GENDER? particularly in a liturgical setting.
4: Well, listen, the, the prayers in the, the liturgy for the funeral do have these, have the pronouns, him and her, and have places to insert names. Um, but there's given a lot of latitude and how to use those and what to do with those. Look, the church does not accept tra- the transgender ideology that somehow one can declare oneself uh, a, a gender or a sex different than one's biological sex. That doesn't mean someone who suffers from gender dysphoria should necessarily be denied a funeral, but if I were going to be celebrating such a funeral, I would simply read the person's name in place of any um, any any pronouns there not's not because i'm trying to I would be trying to uh, agree with their their lifestyle or their decision, but out of respect for the family and the friends that knew them, however they were known mm-hmm. but i would I would never mm-hmm. use a uh, Incorrect pronouns to describe uh, a, a man, a biological man. I think I think you lead you give into the in, give into the sickness that way. Sister Didi, your reaction to this. I mean, you're a religious sister. Your thoughts on a
0: priest referring to a biological male as sister in a liturgical setting. Did that offend you, or is that just um, showing human? Kindness.
5: It just, I think it shows some who kind of lean on that, that liberal ideology. We have to really speak truth with love with people. Uh, and as father said he could avoid having to go through the pronouns by saying Cecilia, even though Cecilia wasn't his birth name and they don't even have, I tried to look it up before we had this interview and it's not um, anywhere to be found. Uh, mm. This poor guy. Had been raped as a six-year-old, had gone through so much as a little boy, and this is what what comes of it. Where it can't add to, you know, fuel to the fire, by calling this young, this um, poor soul a female.
0: Before we get to the archdiocese's reaction, I I want to play for you and the audience a bit of the eulogies that were offered at this funeral service. Now, I want to warn our viewers, there's some strong language here, so families beware, you may want to remove younger children from the room, but we thought you should see what happened at St. Patrick's. Watch.
6: Cecilia! 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 Ladies and gentlemen, Cecilia was born in 1972. Imagine the shocking surprise. <laughs> but I gotta tell you, there's something that's hurting deep in our hearts because we lost our saint. This whore. <laughs> this great whore. Saint
0: Cecilia,
5: mother of all whores.
0: Sister Dee, your reaction to this display in a Catholic cathedral?
5: I mean, it it for me um, almost made me want to vomit because our Lord is there, and it's such a sacrilege, Raymond. Um, and you know, you would never see this in any other kind of um, a religious facility because the devil knows the devil's been at war with our Lord since the day he he was born and, and uh, the devil knows that the one true faith is the Catholic faith and why else would they choose Saint Patrick's? Uh, this is the only reason why uh, they would never do it in the, in a mosque or a, a temple and and it just brings out for those of us who have such a great great love and respect for our Lord this is um this is an insult to our faith and we just have to continue to pray and thank God the uh, Cardinal Dolan had a mass afterwards for the insult that occurred. I think they need an exorcism too, quite honestly.
0: Father Pedri, you heard Sister Dede use that word sacrilege. What constitutes officially A a sacrilege. Does
4: this rise to that level? Well, I think it does. I think that's why there was a massive reparation. A sacrilege is any sort of sin or vulgar, profane act that is done precisely with the intention of um, vulgarizing or betraying the faith or mocking the faith. Now, I can't say. I can't divine the intention of the organizers of this of this event, but it certainly seems that they were hiding certain parts of this person's life. It certainly seems, and how they behaved, that it was intended to make a mockery of the mass, a mockery of the cathedral, a mockery of the faith, and therefore it does rise to the level of sacrilege.
0: Citing the scandalous behavior at the funeral, the rector of Saint Patrick's, Father Enrique Salvo, issued a statement. Claiming that the cathedral didn't know about the deceased's background. Uh, I mean, I, I don't think anyone expected a cathedral to know about anyone's background. A cathedral cannot reason, it's a building. But I'll put that aside. Cardinal Timothy Dolan, the Archbishop of New York, finally made a statement about the debacle on his podcast Wednesday. Listen to this. <laughs>
6: First of all, you know, they get a call. They didn't know the background of this woman who had died. All they know is somebody called and said, our dear friend uh, died. Uh, We'd love to have the funeral at St. Patrick's Cathedral. It would be a great source of consolation. She's a Catholic. Be a great source of consolation for us, her family and friends. And, of course, the priest of the cathedral said, come on in, you're more than welcome. So, which was beautiful. We didn't didn't know the background. Uh, We don't do... FBI checks on people right. who, who want to be buried. So anyway, then, of course, once the funeral started is when the trouble started because of the irreverence and the disrespect of the big crowd that was there. That is was very, very sad. And uh, again, I applaud our priests who made a quick decision that, uh-oh, with behavior like this, we can't do a mass. <laughs>
0: Father Petra, your perspective as a priest who's presided and been a celebrant at more
4: than a few funerals, um, does this lack the vetting normal to a planning of a funeral? No, I don't think so. I mean, with all due respect to his eminence, I mean... We don't need to do FBI background checks. Uh, you know, someone you don't know comes to you either as a priest, comes to your parish or your cathedral and asks to have a funeral for a loved one. Um, if you don't know this person, you, a, a pastor, a priest is going to say, OK, well, first, tell me who you are. Let, let me get to know you. And certainly, and I would hope this would become standard practice at a place like St. Patrick's Cathedral, especially after this event, yeah. certainly uh, one can simply Google a, a person's name and see... and find a whole lot of information about most of us, um, especially if we're an activist on the Internet.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, And with all due respect, this activist had a New York Times full obituary the weekend before. I saw it with my own eyes by accident. Sister Didi, your thoughts on the Cardinal's explanation here. And we should say and tell the viewers, a gay group, told the Catholic News Agency that the funeral organizers told whomever they booked this with at St. Patrick's that they should look up Cecilia's work and background. And according to the New York Times, Joe Swilling, the archdiocese spokesman, was notified by the New York Times the night before this funeral that this Cecilia was a sex worker and a trans advocate because he commented on it at that time.
5: Well I'm not um probably the best person to ask regarding the cardinal but um I know he's supporting his priest but I just got it off, off the phone today with um um one of the CFR the senior CFR priest uh who is mm-hmm. very close friends with this uh, rector and he said he did not know anything about it they vetted poorly they learned a, a lesson but I trust the this father pre this priest and his relationship with this other priest. So I, I just have to in faith feel that the rector did what he you know, they didn't do the right job but they they made a mistake and I'm sure as you said they won't ever let this happen again.
0: Well now the New York A C L U held a press conference demanding answers from the cathedral and the archdiocese as to why their service was cut short. They had booked a full service, they wanted a mass, they didn't get it, as you heard from the video earlier, so now they're insisting that an apology should come forward. Here's the organizer of the funeral, Cheyenne Doro Show, contradicting St. Patrick's version of events. Watch.
6: I didn't do the charge. I didn't tell them her gender orientation. I didn't have to. You don't need to know what's in between her legs to respect her wishes or to respect her proper funeral. But what y'all need to know when the Pope approves same sex marriages? Cardinal Dolan did not. So we're caught in the middle of a war. Regardless of whether they gave her the rights what you need to know is that they violated a canon law, and that law is the, the Catholic Church's side of how the rights were supposed to be given to Cecilia. So what they're not telling you, the transparent Catholic diocese, is that canon law was her right to a free and equal funeral. She was not giving that. It was cut.
0: Father Petrie, this certainly wasn't surprising given how the whole affair was staged and organized. But your thoughts on the accusation that this individual's rights under canon law were violated given the Pope's new teaching? On the blessing of same-sex couples, which this individual claims is a blessing of same-sex marriage,
4: it's remarkable, Raymond. Almost every sentence of that press statement was wrong. Uh, of course, we all know the Pope has not approved same-sex marriages. There are no such things as same-sex marriages in the Church or in nature. And uh, you know, to have uh, canon law, a canonical right uh, to a funeral, one also needs to not have been a manifest a sinner or a schismatic or a heretic. It's not absolute uh, that you would have a canonical right to the funeral. This is not surprising that this is happening this way because this organization, this group has dragged the church into a political battle, which is what our culture does. We live in a culture that sees religion not only as a commodity that should serve self-affirmation and self-promotion and uh, self rather than serve the worship and service of God, but in fact that the church should call what is in fact objectively immoral behavior and in fact harmful behavior that we simply refer Refuse to uh, approve that kind of behavior and support it.
0: Yeah, there's also that other canon that that says if if a funeral is going to cause scandal, it can be denied. That's also in canon law. Absolutely. So I, I don't know why someone didn't deploy one of those. Sister Didi, what do you think was the intent of this funeral at St. Patrick's?
5: Oh, it's pretty clear. They were just trying to uh, harass us. They're, they' they first of all. This individual, Cecilia, is not a Catholic. He, he was not raised Catholic. He was seeking mm-hmm. to find a, a home in some kind of church, from what I read in an interview. Um, but yep. they were just trying to create trouble. That's all.
0: Hmm. Both of you, finally, Father, first, w- w- your thoughts on what should happen here? Well, uh, I, I mean, from my perspective, I think whoever approved this should come forward. I MEAN, THE USE OF ST. PAT'S CAMERAS were, WERE EMPLOYED TO RECORD THIS ENTIRE EVENT. THAT WASN'T ACCIDENTAL. And, and uh, they surely knew who this person was. We have evidence of that. How should St. Patrick's and the Archdiocese repair this situation?
4: Well, if it, if it were me and if it were my, this were to happen in a parish that I was pastor of or rector of, I mean, yeah, there would have to be a, a real um, investigation and an accounting by the staff that allowed this, whoever allowed this. But also, policies mm-hmm. really need to be put in place, and there needs to be real pastoral formation on how to um, receive those who are not practicing Catholics or not active Catholics, who are. Wishing to have a funeral and how to vet that and how to get to know those people before we move forward with any liturgical planning. It seems obvious,
0: yeah. <laughs> Sister D.D.?
4: Yeah,
5: I think I think uh, well, Father's the pastor, but I I would feel better if we had. Father Ripinger in there and have a mass, or the or Cardinal Dolan have a exorcism mass in there and exercise every corner mm. of that place, because God only knows what's been dropped in the corner. Or you know the floors may sweat, have been swept clean, but uh, the devil can hide.
0: We will leave it there, Sister D.D. Byrne, Father Thomas Petrie. Thank you both for being here, and thank you for joining us and uh, and sharing your thoughts. Thank you, Raymond.
5: Thank you. Thanks, Raymond.
0: My next guest is a former professor of moral theology at St. Joseph Seminary in New York, currently a visiting scholar at the McGrath Institute of Church Life at Notre Dame. He's long been an advocate for abuse victims. Here to weigh in on the case of disgraced Jesuit Marco Rupnik. And the testimony this week from one of his victims, please welcome back to the program, Father Thomas Berg. Thank you for being here, Father. Uh, It's been five years since the Vatican Sex Abuse Summit in 2019, where Pope Francis famously said he would confront clergy sex abusers with the wrath of God, zero tolerance. This week, a victim of the disgraced Jesuit priest and artist Marco Rubnik came forward under her own name to detail her ordeal. 59-year-old Gloria Branciani, accompanied by another former member of the order, spoke of physical, psychological, and sexual abuses endured at the hands of Rupnik. Just to recap for our viewers, Rupnik, now 69, is accused of sexually and psychologically abusing at least 20 women for nearly two decades at a convent in Slovenia. Father, why do you think they held this press conference now, and why wasn't it held or hosted by the Vatican?
1: I think they held it now, Raymond, because they felt a desperate need to be heard. Um, Mm. And before I say anything else, I just want to validate and honor the the courage that it took uh, Gloria and and Miriam to to come forward. Uh, My understanding is that in one case, uh, the alleged abuse happened over 30 years ago. So this is 30 years of what? Of what uh, a victim of abuse most wants in terms of justice, which is to be hurt. Mm. If you've been, forgive me, but raped by a priest, Mm. what you most want is for someone in leadership in the church to hear you and validate you and say, I believe you. And I think if they had to go to this extreme, um, it's because they weren't getting that. I, I have heard uh, from someone who was at the, the conference that they, they did express that they did feel that they were finally heard yesterday. But I think mm. this speaks to the brokenness of, in, in many ways, still, the church's response to this crisis.
0: Father, Ms. Branciani's testimony included her statements to the following she said, he took me to pornographic theaters to help me grow spiritually. He said that I would not grow spiritually if I did not meet his sexual needs. He had another nun have sex with us because he said we were like the Trinity. I mean, this is, I I can't even get to some of the other uh, really depraved accusations, Father, but These statements alone confirm what we've been hearing about this Rupnik case, that he would manipulate his victims by using faith, not to mention the confessional. Your thoughts on
1: why he was able to get away with this for so long? Because um, these individuals um, are uh, kind of masterminds at manipulation, um, i think you know my my own story my history with the legionaries of christ and the, the experience yep. of marcial maciel um they are masters at manipulation spiritual manipulation um, besides the emotional psychological sexual abuse this is spiritual abuse this is false mysticism mm-hmm. this is this is simply demonic uh, and and um so it, a, a person who is then Vulnerable as all of these uh, women, there were women religious at the time. They were members right. of the Saloidola community that he had founded. There's just a tremendous vulnerability when this individual that you put on a pedestal as a spiritual leader, as a spiritual father, is. Um, there's just a and and especially if you're living kind of a a mystique of of generosity and self-gift and. And, and absolute trust mm. and absolute surrender of your will and your intellect to... I mean, these poor women were absolutely wide open to this monster.
0: And in the church, in church circles, he was regarded as this great artiste, you know, decorating all the sanctuaries of the world and being feted and, and toasted everywhere he went. Rupnik was briefly excommunicated, Fatherberg, in 2020 for absolving one of his victims of having relations with him And then he was reinstated after supposedly repenting formally. Then last June, he's expelled from the Jesuits, only to be reincarnated to the Diocese of Slovenia in October. Why does the Vatican and the church at large seem so willing to turn a blind eye to this abuse? I mean, the abuse of adults, particularly women religious.
1: Um, part Part of its process... I think a lot of it is a uh a culture uh, a deep culture of resistance to the truth I'll, I'll come back to that in a second but part of this is process um the uh can, canonical penal system for dealing with these cases is absolutely broken um and there's just no getting around that. And that's how you uh, end up with this uh, cockamamie uh, outcome of being excommunicated for a horrendous uh, and also mm-hmm. sacrilegious crime. And then within the same month, having the excommunication lifted. Um, and I think there was some sense that uh, the powers that be got that so bad and so messed up that Francis did have to intervene and, and say, no, this is going back to the DDF. Um, to the dicastery for the doctrine of the faith. Um, but I, I, I have to say, Raymond, I don't believe that, you know, to, to really to fix this problem, um, I don't think that tweaking the system or adjusting the code of canon law, um, even a wholesale reform of our penal process, is going to solve the problem. I mean, I think we need an entirely new approach to the concept of justice right now, that system is its built on a concept of retributive justice. It's aimed, it's specifically focused on uh, retribution. Um, it's focused on the perpetrator. We need a system that really focuses on the victims and on justice for the victims. And that's, um, mm-hmm. I'm very much an advocate of another approach, which is the, the tradition of restorative justice. Um, and I, I think that if we could apply that to this crisis more and more, you know, restorative justice, you you think of um, its application in places like South Africa after apartheid and Rwanda mm-hmm. uh, after the genocide, national truth commissions. How much would the mm-hmm. church be served by a national yeah. uh, truth commission to get at, to really get at what happened with McCarrick, to now yeah. get at what happened with Rupnik? Um, and that's approach that really seeks the good and the healing of the victims.
0: That also takes a lot of soul-searching, and it looks like people are not willing to do that. I mean, as you mentioned, the guy's excommunicated. Before before you can turn around, the excommunication is lifted. And now, suddenly, the Vatican press office announces the same day these victims held their press conference that the investigation of Rupnik is ongoing. They said the following— After expanding the search to realities not previously contacted and having just received the latest elements in response, it will now be necessary to study the acquired documentation in order to identify which procedures can and should be implemented. Now, Father— I don't even know how to translate that, but this thing's been dragging on for years. What procedures do they need to consult? These women are in pain and have been in in such pain for decades now.
1: It's it's maddening, and I hope every one of our viewers understands that this is maddening. Um, And the upshot is going to be well, okay. Well, what would what would be the outcome then? Like the worst thing that could happen to this man. Worst thing that can happen to this man. Through a penal process is that he's laicized. Wow. Okay. So that um, that outcome means little or nothing for for victims, and the process itself is so um, uh, troubled by just it it, the the inability for victims to when they do have to give their testimony to be accompanied by counsel, not knowing the outcomes, Mm -hmm. not being able to see uh, evidence that that's it it, and and as you say it's what what is there more to you know to examine here obviously yes they have to follow the process right and and but my problem Mm. is that the process itself is is deeply deeply flawed and and even when that when that process is done even if this man is eventually um laicized you're still going to have victims who are hurting uh, victims who do not yet have a sense that they've received justice and we need a, a, a complete new approach to to this uh, to this ongoing crisis
0: and father again you have an institution investigating itself final question is an independent criminal investigation what is needed here
1: oh absolutely I mean we've been saying that for forever and and I know that uh, mm-hmm. at the uh, the uh, Press conference yesterday was organized by uh, Ann Barrett Doyle from Bishop Accountability, and she she also called mm-hmm. for as as many as many have why why cannot you know bishops uh, a, 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 bishops examining priests bishops uh, examining uh, bishops uh, and trying to hold them accountable just it, it doesn't work and also given the at times the intricacies of these cases um, but what we need what we really need is an accounting um, but. More deeply than that, the problem is—and this I think this gets down to the echelons of, deeply within Vatican bureaucracy, um, and I think also especially within, still within the Italian church. Persons have told me that they're still about 20 years behind the United States in terms of dealing with this crisis. Um, there's a deep resistance to truth, okay? The whole—the value of transparency, that has not even begun to seep into the places where it needs to seep in. Um, there's too many clerics, too many prelates in power who have a real problem with facing the truth of, of the, the, the whole truth of, of this sad uh, chapter in the church, which, by the way, sadly, it stretches back centuries. So we have a huge, yeah. huge problem. Um, if anything, yeah. I don't believe we needed a synod on synodality. We needed a, a, a synod, a gathering of every bishop in the church to actually deal, look at, come together, come to grips on the depth, complexity, and extent of uh, se- sexual abuse in the church by clergy and by others in leadership.
0: Hmm. Father Thomas Berg, we will leave it there, and we'll check in with you soon. Thank you for being here. Thanks, Raymond. Thanks for having me. I now want to go to the bishop of the Diocese of Baker, Oregon. Earlier this month, he released a pastoral letter titled To Bless or Not to Bless on the Vatican Declaration, Fiducia Supplicans To discuss the letter and why he's speaking out on this controversial directive, please welcome Bishop Liam Carey. Bishop, thanks for being here. Uh, in the letter to the diocese, you ask your priests to not give blessings to known cohabitating couples, be they same-sex or separate sex, why not?
7: Well, I tried to trace in that letter, I wanted to make it brief. By the way, the letter was written to the people of my diocese. Uh, it's entirely written to them as their bishop because uh, mm-hmm. I had all kinds of people ask me what I thought about this. There was a great deal of confusion and so I gave it a good deal of thought and uh, uh, the, uh, I guess the, the way I did it is, uh, I was quite I was quite surprised to receive this letter, uh, receive the news of Vilucha Soplicans in December, uh, there was no advance notice of it, and uh, it was quite a shock. Uh, because blessings are just a, one part of as I a, a peace in the valley of the blessing territory in the church. It seems one area where that's a really beautiful, gentle, commonplace thing, and then to have it suddenly kind of have a rock thrown in the water. So uh, I would have happily. Uh, shared the thoughts that i've expressed in the in the letter i wrote to bless or not to bless had i been asked uh, as other bishops would i'm sure have done uh but we we were not asked we were not consulted about it well i don't know the reasons for that but i I do know that it seems objectively that it led to a great deal of confusion uh, that was not desired by cardinal fernandez nor the pope so uh, people ask me what do i think and uh i so I i try to take my bearings on this thing and i looked around uh, geographically you might say looking to Rome from Oregon and as you look to Rome from Oregon you're, you're struck by two other regions on the way to that to get into Rome so to speak first of all it's northern Europe uh, with uh, the, you know Germany and Belgium and Austria where we see that there's uh, open advocacy by bishops indeed and other people maybe many people for precisely what fiducia supplicans prohibits, unquestionably. And secondly, there's not only open advocacy for further change, there's open resistance to papal intervention. Uh, countries where mass attendance has plummeted and church is shrinking dramatically. So that's one of the geographical reference points is that Northern Europe. The other one is, is Africa. As you look there in the last couple of months, you can't you can't overlook Africa, uh, and it's quite a contrast because there in Africa and the whole continent, the, the church is expanding, not diminishing. It's uh. expanding rapidly, and it has a, a huge number of uh, Catholics. And it's quite interesting to note that the bishops there in Africa were surprised, and they reacted in in unified surprise and dismay at the suddenness of this uh, of this of this letter.
0: But Bishop. The, the the Vatican and Cardinal Fernandez of the Vatican's Doctrinal Office, they say they're just blessing individuals. That's all they're doing, not the couple, just the individuals who come together. You would respond how to that?
7: Well, I I responded, as I said in my letter, uh, that subtle distinctions of fiducia supplicans will not keep bystanders from concluding that the church, the priest, represents— no longer believes as she always did before, but is now endorsing the unions of unmarried couples when a a priest is seen uh, blessing them publicly.
0: So again, the practice, what we do, the images created from that practice, that ends up being the doctrine, changing the doctrine, at least in the minds of the faithful.
7: Uh, In the minds of the faithful, but also in the minds of the non-Catholics who then influence the Mm. faithful as well. We have a great concern for people that are supposedly excluded from the church and are outside the church and how to bring the gospel to them and make it more acceptable and not be judgmental and and condemning and that's all important uh, certainly important to note however we have to have we have to have concern for the faith of the faithful to, so, so they to to, to, to to preserve their faith and and not to weaken it by uh, what our actions uh, do. Mm. Bishop Carey, we keep hearing
0: that fiducia changes nothing, and it actually upholds the church teaching on marriage and family. Why did you feel you had to issue this statement now?
7: Precisely because of the confusion. I have letters Mm. from people in my diocese asking, I have one person that was ready to leave the church. And I wanted to, Mm. and you'll notice, I I quote that in the letter, I quote the... the, uh, uh, Cardinal Fernandez's multiple reaffirmations of the of the teaching of the church repeatedly affirmed. And those are both signed by the Holy Father. That declaration.
0: And that's a good point. You, you created a whole timeline here of uh, how initially in 2021, the doctrinal office issued a statement saying you could not bless same sex couples and that it, you, you couldn't bless sin. The Holy Father signed off on that. Two years later, we have the reversal of that. How do you put that together for people?
7: Well, I, that's what I tried to do. As I said, I wrote this uh, for the people of my diocese who are not professional theologians, nor am I, for that matter. Mm-hmm. But I didn't want, I, pers- I did not want to get into all those uh, difficult dis- uh, distinctions that are very much debated by theologians. And I, I think that we can't, uh, I wanted to, to stay at the basic. Experiential, uh, ex- experientially confirmable truths that we can, uh, that people have, have to live with.
0: Yeah, well, the Vatican and the proponents of these blessings for same-sex couples and those in irregular unions, um, they keep saying, and they say in this document, fiducia supplicans, that these are non-liturgical blessings and therefore not a reason for concern. Can a blessing from a priest ever be
7: non-liturgical? And had you ever heard that before? Uh, no, I hadn't, and that was... Uh, when the, the confusion was shared by me, and I think by many, that that distinction uh, was—if if it's a valid distinction—it needs more clarification than was given in that brief uh, document. I would say, respectfully, uh, I don't. I think the point of, of a priestly blessing is he's the one that celebrates the heart, of the, celebrates the liturgy. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of just an extension of the sacrament of holy orders when he gives a blessing.
0: Bishop, uh, you talk about in your letter that a new context has arisen in light of uh, fiducia and what we're dealing with in the the idea of non-liturgical and liturgical blessings. You cite at length the growing objections to fiducia in your letter, specifically the carve-out that you mentioned earlier, Pope Francis, that he extended to the African Church. Bishop, what are your thoughts on the Vatican issuing exceptions by reason by regions, and doesn't that damage the credibility of the document altogether?
7: Well, frankly, uh, I, I haven't given that thought to that. I, I'm uh, uh, what's what's going to come from this. I don't know, but it seems to me that uh, I have in conscience. I have to. to uh, I'm responsible for the, the transmission of the faith in my diocese, and that's what I'm concerned about now. Uh, mm-hmm. How this can be how this can be improved, I don't know, but I, I certainly pray that it will be:
0: yeah, well, we've seen bishops conferences all over the world. I mean, the Dutch came together, you had a group of Hungarians. Uh, do you hope your brother Bishops will join you in raising concerns about the confusion that this document has stirred up in the hopes that either uh, another exemption is given to the you know to North America or that the document can be adjusted or rescinded?
7: Well, I I respect my brother bishops, and I've gotten great letters of very good support from them, a number of them. Uh, I'm just doing what—and I, I don't—their situation is different from mine. I'm not—I don't know that everybody should do the same mm-hmm. thing. But I don't see this as an exception, really. I see it as—because Cardinal Fernandez makes those distinctions before he had the meeting with, with, the, with the African bishops. He talked about the possibility that it wouldn't be possible for a bishop to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, the
0: in, the in the following commentary, though, the Pope and Fernandez have both said, well, the African thing, that's in their own culture, as if they have a cultural prohibition on this. But the rest of the world, it's perfectly acceptable. But what you're saying in the document is, no, Catholic teaching really doesn't permit you to extend these blessings, if I'm reading yes. it
7: correctly. Yeah, and I guess I, I would say that uh, uh, I said I have a profound respect for the witness of Africa. And I I don't Mm -hmm. see why that witness should be discounted.
0: Bishop Liam Carey, we will leave it there. I thank you so much for your voice on this issue. And you can find Bishop Carey's pastoral letter to bless or not to bless at the Diocese of Baker's website, dioceseofbaker.org. Thank you. Finally, in dark times such as these, it's refreshing and I think necessary to remind ourselves of the excitement and joy of new life. My next guest has done just that in her brand new picture book, celebrating those moments families experience when welcoming a new life into their world, and how to explain what's happening to those little ones who will soon have a new baby brother or sister in their homes. Please welcome the author of Little Spark of Life, a celebration of born and preborn human life, Courtney Sebring. Courtney, thanks for being here. What was the inspiration for Little Spark of Life? Tell us, what was your process of writing it and what sparked your spark of life?
8: (laughs) Absolutely, I'd love to. Um, Little Spark of Life is really where a lot of different passions meet, both my own and my daughter's. She was a huge influence in the writing of this book. Um, So you could say that she was obsessed, deeply interested in all things pregnancy and childbirth from about the age of three to six. And so just by virtue of being around that all the time, the art that she made, the dramatic play, that was a huge Mm. influence on the book. And in the middle of all this, when she was around four years old, my husband and I became really interested in learning more about the pro-life movement. And that was when I first began to write the poem little spark of life that eventually became the book so it's it's really a combination mm. of my daughter's awe and wonder on the subject of new life and everything that i personally was learning about pro life apologetics at the time you know it was it was really important mm. to me to not only create a book that spoke to the science behind the question where do babies come from but also to include specific truths that are honestly under attack right now in our culture
2: mm.
0: Little Spark of Life really piques uh, the curiosity, I think, of kids who may be Mm -hmm. expecting a little brother or sister. You take readers from the little spark that grows week by week and month by month into a -a one-of-a-kind human life in a wondrous and informative way. What have readers said about the book, especially on how kids react to it, I wonder?
8: Um, I've had some really great responses. One of my favorites is it highlights just that the the imagination behind it, uh, that the book is written in a way where kids can really understand this thing that is so hard to understand that it's hidden from view, which is one of the lines in the book. The mother yeah. speaking in the book says, "You know, your imagination so wild will will be able to see what's hidden from view." my sweet child, as I explain it to you.
1: Mm.
0: Mm-hmm. The, the, the sanctity of life, you mentioned this a second ago, that's often forgotten mm-hmm. in our culture. How mm-hmm. does your little spark of life try to change that situation? I mean, what's what's different in your approach with, with this book?
8: Yeah, uh, great question. Um, well, when I think about how little spark of life is supporting the pro-life message, I immediately think of the long-term you know, I think about the kids who are going to hear their parents or caregivers or teachers read this book to them um, and hopefully other books that uplift goodness, beauty and truth, but specifically the pro-life message, because I, I firmly believe that our imaginations have a lot to do with shaping our values. You know, scripture tells us that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks and our actions follow. So Um, like I said that there, there are specific pro-life apologetics that I, that I took on in this book, for example, two separate bodies in one single place. What an intricate plan for the whole human race, um, specifically saying, you know, on a level where kids can understand, I want it to get into their brain so that in the future, when they come across my body, my choice, they'll say, wait a second, that's not what I learned. It's two separate bodies in one single place or every babe hoped for or unplanned surprise holds the same worth from the first cell divide. That it doesn't matter what the person's story is or the the circumstances, that from the moment of conception, that baby has dignity, value and worth.
0: Hmm. Now, tell me about this light, the spark campaign. What is that? You all are offering the the book to particular buyers, but. How does that work?
8: Absolutely. Um, So the Light the Spark campaign is happening right now. Um, Paraclete Press is offering 40% off 40 books right now, uh, which I believe is a case of books. We really want to get Little Spark of Life um, to as many children, to as many future culture makers as possible. So we encourage people to... Um, purchase a case and donate it to a pregnancy care center or a church or a school. So people can mm. find more information about that on Paraclete Press's website or the book's landing page, which is littlesparkoflifebook.com.
0: Uh, what's your next project, Courtney? What are you working on now?
8: Um, well, uh, the next project is a book called Everybody Wonderfully Made, which affirms for children the beauty and goodness of being boy or girl. It's a resource for parents, but it's really just a fun book for kids that encourages them that their bodies are inextricably linked to their personhood. Um, so building mm-hmm. off the message of Little Spark of Life, that every life is val- valuable, everybody wonderfully made, takes it a step further and roots mm-hmm. life and personhood in the body, male or female, and calls it good. Um, that God doesn't make mistakes. Mm-hmm.
0: Little Spark of Life, a celebration of born and pre-born human life by Courtney Sebring is available now in bookstores everywhere and online, including at the EWTN catalog. Courtney, thank you for being here.
8: Thanks so much, Raymond.
0: That is all the time we have for now. Be sure to catch us next week. Until then, we'll be scouting the world over for all that is seen and unseen. On behalf of the staff and crew of EWTN News, thank you for watching. I'm Raymond Arroyo. Bye now. Редактор субтитров А.Семкин Корректор А.Егорова Редактор субтитров